Alrighty, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Mateo capítulo 18. Okay. If you see me walking a little weird, it's because I pulled my bag yesterday morning. I woke up out of bed. Seriously, like I do CrossFit, I like lift weights, heavy weights over my body and nothing. And yesterday morning, I just like woke up and quick, just like out of bed and I just like, I stayed there. So, yeah. Yeah. So when you're young, stretch. When you're old, stretch. And hopefully it won't happen to you. Matthew chapter 18. Have you guys ever wondered why punishment and pain are needed to correct behavior? Have you ever asked that yourself that question? I mean, how many of you, when you were a little kid, were told not to play with fire? Because you were going to get what? Burn. Many of you obeyed and don't have any scars. Many of you didn't obey and have many scars and many stories. But most importantly, hopefully you learn from your mistakes. Look at jails, for example. For the most part, they serve as a deterrent for criminal behavior. We see movies or have family members that have been in jail or in prison and tell us these stories and we hear their horror stories and we should think to ourselves, I really don't want to commit crimes. I really don't want to suffer like that, right? How many of you still remember a punishment from your parents that was a turning point in your life? Whether it was an actual punishment, whether it was a spanking, as hard as you still, you still remember the pain. I remember one time in ninth grade, I actually got a D in my report card for Algebra 1. My dad, he uh, graciously grounded me for an entire month. And for me, it was important because I used to go out every Friday, Saturday, Sunday with my church friends. And, you know, every, every weekend there was something to do. And he, for a month, did not allow me to go out with my church friends. And that, for me, is so detrimental. Like, I remember, I still remember it. I never got anything less than a B ever in my report card because of that. Because my dad, you know, one, and you know when they say a month and two weeks, they're like, he's going to just do a week. No, he was like an entire month. So we should live our lives, right, in fear of God, not because we don't want to get caught or we don't want to get punished, but because we don't want to offend a holy God, but also because we love God, right? A way that we show we love God, if we love God, we follow his commandments. But unfortunately, we don't have our glorified bodies yet. We're not in heaven. We're not perfect. And our sin inclines us more to disobedience than obedience. So we need these constant reminders to keep us on track and accountable to God. And you know what? We should be grateful that the Lord has instruments to sanctify us, to keep us on track, to keep us seeking Him and loving Him. So pain does that. It's one of life's greatest teachers. It can prevent you from pain or it can make you stop and repent from your current behaviors. Pain or fear gives you wisdom in how to act. Now, this principle was not just invented. God created this. And for example, Proverbs 3, chapter, uh, verse 11 through 12 says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 1 Timothy 5, 19-20, Those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. 
an important passage that a lot of you are familiar with comes in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So if discipline functions to correct behavior in many aspects of our society, why would it be any different to use this type of discipline to correct those in the church who are going astray? That is what we'll be discussing today in our lesson. We're going to talk about church discipline. Please follow along as I read Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that may, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. So we've been talking about chapter 18 for a while, the last three lessons. In lesson one, we discussed, we went over the sad question the disciple asked Jesus. Did anybody remember that question? What did the disciples ask Jesus? That sad question. Anybody? Nico? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Right? That's what they asked Jesus. And who, what was the answer? Does anybody remember the answer? Fox? Yes, those who humble themselves like children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which means those who serve others and treat others more than themselves are the ones that are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In lesson two, we discussed how we are not to cause other believers to stumble. What did our great Lord Jesus say? That it was better for what? For you to be thrown in the depth of the sea with what around your neck? A millstone than to face the wrath of God for causing a fellow believer to stumble. Last lesson, we learned that the reasons why we should not cause our fellow believers to stumble or to sin is because he watches over them always. He saves them. He values them. He cares for them. He leaves the 99 sheep to go for one. And he rejoices when a believer comes back to the fold and repents after going astray. So today we're going to look at a method that God has given us to be instruments in his hands to bring believers back astray to the fold. Those who are astray to bring them back to the fold. We'll be looking at four steps. Four steps to restore a believer via church authority. Four steps to restore a believer via church authority. The first step, as we read, we're going to confront with person, verse 15. 
The second step is to confront with others, verse 16. Step three is to confront with the church, 17a. Step four is to treat as an unbeliever, 17b. And then the Lord gives us the reasons why we can do this through the authority of the church in verses 18 through 20. For those that are taking notes, the main idea of this lesson is God calls believers to confront and pray for other believers who go astray. God calls believers to confront and pray for other believers who go astray. So let's begin with step one. To confront the person privately. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If your brother sins. So the Greek word for brother here means a fellow Israelite, which also includes male and female. So when we say brother, if I say that throughout the night, just know that it's, I'm referring to both male and female. It's a term that's used for both, not just males. It's both, okay? Um, a commentator wrote that the word brother also implies a prior history which creates a spirit of trust and acceptance that has developed so the person can be more willing to receive. So this is somebody, if a brother sins. So it's somebody that you know. It's somebody that you do church with. It's something that you are a professing believer, and the other person is a professing believer. Therefore, you're going to do this. You're going to confront them on their sin. Other translations have, if your brother sins against you. There are other trans like the, the New King James Version or the King James Version says, if a brother sins, if a brother sins against you. No matter if the sin is caused at a personal level or it's caused in general, the believer here is sinning and needs to be confronted. If your brother sins. Now, you might ask your question, what type of sin merits church discipline? What type of sin merits church discipline? Well, rule of thumb. If the person exhibits a hard, hardened rebellion, they know it's sin, they know it's in the Bible, they know they're not supposed to be doing it, yet they still continue to do it anyways, that is the type of sin that merits church, the process of church discipline to begin. Any questions on that? That's very important that you understand that. Questions? Yes. That's a great, that's a great question. So, because there's repentance, we're sinners. That's what the Christian life is all about. Some struggle with some sins, some don't struggle with some other sins, but regardless, it's a struggle. And you can struggle with a type of sin for the rest of your life, and you, you fall, and you come back, and you repent, and you're good, and then you fall again. That's, that's, that's part of life, and that's okay. But this is a type of sin where, you know, I'm not repenting because I don't see nothing wrong with it, and I'm going to give you an example later. Therefore, you're, you're rebelling against God on purpose, you know, knowing what you're doing on purpose. Therefore, it requires your fellow believers to come and confront you on it because there's a lot of implications that if they don't, things can happen to the church, and that's what we're going to discuss. Thoughts? Start the beginning. God is gracious. Yes. And I know that in Countryside, there are many situations where more than the same person twice churches. So, yes. It's okay. 
That's the rule of thumb. A commentator, uh, okay, so, so what happens when your brother sins against you, right? Or sins against you, sins against the church? You go and show him his fault in private. Once you determine the sin, once you determine that you're really in rebellion, and once you determine that it's, it's conversations, guys. It's not just one conversation that you had and you expect it's, you're seeing this, and you're seeing this pattern, and you're, you're having multiple conversations, and in these all conversations that you had, there is no repenting, there is no remorse, there's still, I just, I don't care, I, I don't feel this is wrong, and I'm going to do it. You go and show him his fault in private. Go involves action. You are not to let this slide, but actually in love confront your fellow believers. A commentator noted that go is also in the present tense, meaning it could be a series of gentle and patient conversations that you have with somebody about an unrepenting sin. Another commentator wrote that going is also a command. If you don't go in love with to win your brother over, you are actually sinning. You are actually hating your brother rather than loving him. Love that tolerates sin is not love at all. It's worldly and selfish sentimentality. That's what it is. By you not confronting a person... In love, winning them over to God, you're hating them rather than loving them. That's why we just talked about the 99 sheep, that the pastor leaves one, the shepherd leaves one, and goes finds the one that's astray. Because for God, it's important. And if, if it's important for God to pray for those that are astray, it's, it should be important for us. And in fact, it's so important to God that he created a medium to get that one that's astray to come back through a process like this of persistence. Why should we go and confront a brother who is sinning? Why? Well, we know that if that brother is sinning against other believers, he's also sinning against who? Christ himself, right? And we know that God does not like that. We just have the three lessons. We just know that God is not okay with that. So we have to confront the believer that's causing other believers to stumble, but also because it stains the church. It stains the church. What do I mean by this? For example, let's say I invite somebody over to my church. Hey, man, you know, we're, I'm at work, and I invite, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? I go to North Lake Bible Church. It's a great church, a Bible-preaching church. Oh, yeah, North Lake Bible? Wait, hold on a second. Isn't that where Johnny goes? Yeah, Johnny, yeah, he plays in the band. He's the leader. He's like... I think that's what I, I don't think I want to go there. I, Johnny, he, he's trying to get some shady stuff. He sold some insurance policies that were fake, and and he and you say he's a leader at your church. I don't, I'm good. It stains the church. MacArthur states every sin by a believer stains the entire fellowship of believers. I'll repeat that: every sin by a believer stains the entire fellowship of believers, whether it's slander, stealing, gossip sexual morality, dishonesty, doctrinal error, lack of submission, cruelty, blasphemy, profanity, drunkenness, or anything else egregious by the offending child of God, it must be dealt with by the church. We can't let each other stain God's church. We can't do that. We have to hold each other. It doesn't mean that we're not perfect because we could have, because because Johnny could have done that, but he could have repented and paid back the insurance policies that he sold and made it right, okay? 
But we can't just let Johnny get away with it, saying he goes to an older Bible church and giving Christ a bad name. Why do you think the step needs to be done privately first? Anybody want to give this out? Why do you think it should be privately first? Ian? Okay, you don't want to make a scene out of it, yes? Less likely to repent. Excellent. It, uh, it will per- be perceived as an act of love, a commentator writes, right? To preserve the person's dignity so that the embarrassment will not be a hindrance to their repentance. So let's say you, you do go, right? You go and show him his faults in private. And if he listens to you, the Greek word for listens to you means to heed, to actually respond in conformity. Like, you know what? You're right. Thank you for showing me my sin. This is going to stop. You have won your brother over. The Greek word for one is to spare, to save or relieve an experience from, ex- from an experience or action. The same word for win is used in 1 Peter 3 verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. What are we sparing our brother from? What are we saving our brother from? What are we winning? We've won our brother. What? Why? We are sparing our brother from God's judgment and potential detrimental consequences of his sin. We love to, we have to love each other to the point where it's like, you don't really want to go this route. The consequences of the sin in your life are going to be big, great. You don't want to go there. Please come back to God. Come back to honoring God. Come back to loving God. Also, I want to put this in your mind. We also, we need to always remember that the purpose of church discipline is never to look down upon others. It's never to think that you're better than others. It's never to scold or reject others, but rather to love, care, show true concern about the sin they are committed before God. Concern. Church discipline is not to get, try to get somebody out of the church. Church discipline is if a professing believer says that they are a believer and they are in this unrepenting sin, a purpose of church discipline is to restore them back to God, not to take them or kick them out of the church. Have that in your mind clear. Our goal should always been to, to our goal should always be to win a brother. Galatians chapter six verse one says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, says the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother or sister to the fold, to have them restored to God, not to take out a grudge or put anyone down or seek revenge. That is not the motivation for church discipline. So the following example is going to be used as a guide as we follow through each step. Okay, so I'm going to go back to Johnny, Johnny Smith, you know, selling that fake insurance. He's a professing believer and he's living with Linda. Listen, Linda. Linda's not listening. So Johnny and Linda are living together. But guess what? They're not married. 
not married. So as believers, we come and approach Johnny and Linda and let them know, you know, Scripture says that you're not supposed to be living together without being married. This is sin before the Lord, right? If Johnny and Linda acknowledge and say, you know what, you're right, we're kind of feeling the conviction, but we're just ignoring it, but now that you came to us, they stop living together, and then eventually they get married, and they start living together again. Okay, that's good. That's, that's what we want. We've won Johnny and Linda back to God. But what if Johnny and Linda says, well, it's 2022. I'm pretty sure those verses in the Bible don't apply to us today. I mean, everyone is doing it. Yeah, Johnny and, and Linda, but you have to understand that the, God, the, word, the word of God is true yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it doesn't matter of when it was written. It's God's word, and he tells us. And in 2022, in 21, 22, and 22, 22, all those years, we have to obey God and his word. And we, we pray that you really acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and you know that what you're doing is simple. Please turn away from this thing. After several conversations, they're still living together, and there's still no sign of moving out. We then follow and move on to step number two. Step number two, confront with others. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So after you confront a person privately and they don't listen and they don't repent, you take two or three with you to confront the same person with the same sin. Why? Why one or two? Well, one reason is hopefully they'll see it as, okay, these people really care about me. I mean, to take, it's hard enough to go and confront somebody in their sin. One, now, this person was so concerned that they got others to come to talk to me about this. That could be a reason why two or others, right? The other reason could be, well, just so the others can serve as a witness. Hey, yeah, we were there when Alejandro spoke to Johnny and Linda, and multiple times we were there, and they still don't want to repent. So when we go to the third step, which is to the church, the witnesses are there. Like, yeah, we were there. We saw they're really not repenting. They really don't even want to. They're not in the vicinity. That's why two or more. So, practicality. Who should be these one or two coming to the person to confront? So here in North Lake Bible, the elders of the church are the ones that who officially put someone in church discipline. This is a formal process that is communicated to the individual so that no individual surprise, like, what do you mean I'm in church discipline? No, you know you're in church discipline. It's clearly stated to you. That's who starts and initiates discipline process. Now, who goes to confront this person in their sin? Well, usually, if the Lord puts it in your heart and you're seeing the sin that's going and happening, okay, you go. But also, to be, it has to be one of the elders of the church and preferably maybe their leader, if they, if they should be serving in the church, and because if the professing believer, you have your spiritual gift that you should be you know, serving in the church, so you go with a leader that there, there could be some familiarity with the person, that the three people that are there, not just some strangers, but people that actually love and are committed to the person and really want this person to come back to God, to repent from their sin. Now, do these people have to have seen and witnessed the sin that they're going through? Not necessarily. 
But you could. You could have somebody who's witnessed the same to come as well as be one of these one or two witnesses. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The Greek word here for maybe confirmed means to be established. To be or become confirmed or upheld as legally valid. So we here, we really want to know the truth, that this is not a false accusation. That we took our time to really see all the facts and yes, this is actually happening. How many of you in your Bibles have this part of the verse italicized? Raise your hand. Or like in lower, in uppercase letters, right? It is because it's referencing Deuteronomy 19 verses 15 through 21. More verse 15. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it discusses laws concerning testimony and witnesses. And it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So it's very hard for one person to come accuse them and say, yes, it happened. It's more that two or three witnesses have to have seen it to be confirmed. Right? God does not like those that accuse falsely. We see that in Deuteronomy uh, chapter verse 17, 16. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in the office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. So God does not like false witnesses. Know that. But just like he doesn't like false witnesses, he also likes justice and to be fair, and he needs two or three to confirm that this is true. And that's a good thing, that God is just, and he provides these, these meetings for us to follow. So let's also be reminded that the purpose of two or more coming to confront the individual is not, again, to gang up on the person, to make him feel horrible, so they can... It's to show more love to the person. The person has to feel loved, right? And we're like, these people actually care about me. They're actually here. They take out of their busy time to multiple times confront me in my sin. That is the love that wins the brother or sister over. So Johnny and Linda, they're confronted by their small group leader, an elder from the church, and the friend that, you know, came with this. So they com they're confronted, and because they're members of the church, the elder explains, hey, you know, you guys are members of this church. You know that when you apply for membership, you, you read the Constitution, you read what we practice here. Church discipline is what we do. We, we've talked to you multiple times, privately. We've talked to you multiple times with witnesses. You still are not repenting before the Lord. Now, if they do repent, it's like, yeah, you know what? You know, the Holy Spirit convicts them, and they're done, and they move out. The process ends at step number two. But... If they continue, then it moves on to step number three, right? And they're going to say, if you guys don't move out by a certain date, this is the ultimatum, ultimatum we're giving you. Through a letter, you'll tell the church. Well, through a letter, they'll tell them the ultimatum and the date. If you guys don't move out, if you guys continue, you guys are professing believers, you guys are members of this church. Notice I'm saying believers multiple times. They're professing believers, and they're members of the church. Again, I'm saying that multiple times because it's important that you understand that. Church discipline happens to somebody who professes Christ 
and somebody who's a member of the church. The elders would tell them, if you don't move out by a certain date, we're going to tell the church. And now the church is going to know of your sin, and now they're going to be trying to admonish you and trying to win you back to God. So, step number three, confront with the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. At this point, the seeming believer has been given the opportunity to repent privately, has been given the opportunity to repent with witnesses, and they're still not doing, they're still holding firm to the ground. I don't feel that I'm sinning. I don't feel everyone else is doing it. There's nothing wrong with living with my girlfriend. I'm not going to stop. It went to the church. The church now knows. Through a membership meeting, everyone, the pastor said, guys, just want to let you know, these two people, they're members of our church. They're members of the flock. They're living together. They've told them multiple times through months and months. We've tried to admonish them. We've tried to encourage them. We've tried to help them see their sin, and they still are not repentant. We need to come together as a church now and pray for them. And whenever you get an opportunity, also to be admonishing them and encouraging them and loving them and telling them, hey, stop, repent, repent, and come back to God. But Johnny and Linda still don't, they were like, well, okay, the church knows, who cares? We're going to start a revolution. We're going to be the ones that are going to change everything here. So we're not going anywhere. Okay. So now, Move on to step four, retreat as a unbeliever. Retreat as an unbeliever. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If Johnny and Linda refuse to listen to all the church members, they are to be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. The Greek for let him be means to have the quality of being. So have the quality of being a Gentile, have the quality of being a tax collector. The, word, the Greek word for Gentile means a person from an ethnic group or nation not allied with trusting in the God of Israel. And we know that the context of who Jesus is talking to right now are Jews. And Jews and Gentiles just really, really don't get along. And they're really adamant about having a Gentile in their house. It's very, very discriminatory, guys. And Jesus is telling them, that's how you're going to treat them, like a Gentile. And we all know what the tax collectors did, right? They were Jews who worked for the Romans, who were the oppressive government, collecting the taxes for the Romans, and then they were collecting a little extra something, something that they would pocket in their, that they would pocket in their, that they would take the money for themselves, and they were, it, it was okay, because the Romans allowed them to do that, and these are the, these are the tax setters that the Jews hated. Because not only are you working for a Gentile, but you're taking advantage of us, your people, taking more money that you need, and that's how Jesus is telling him, treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile. So what is Jesus actually saying here? He's saying to treat them as if they were unbelievers. To treat them as if they were unbelievers. It's also implying to release them from the church. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. This is a church member who was having a relationship with a family member. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. 
If anyone does not obey our instruction to this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. A commentator wrote, Upon acting this third step, to clearly indicate to the congregation that they are to pursue the person aggressively and plead with them to repent before the fourth step become necessary, that crucial and potent procedure often draws a sinner to repentance and obedience. Not to have fellowship or even social contact with the unrepenting brothers does not exclude all contact. When there is opportunity to admonish him and try to call him back, the opportunity should be taken. In fact, such opportunity should be sought, but the contact should be for the purpose of admonishment and no other. And what do you guys do when you talk to unbelievers? You also do what? Taylor? Share the gospel. Yeah. Because now they're professing believers, but their actions are not showing. They're practicing sin. So you treat them like an unbeliever. We're doing what the Bible says. You preach the gospel to them. And hopefully through that, they can come back to the fold. And many have. When they see themselves not con connected to a church, when they see themselves alone, when they see themselves separated from the flock, some of that, God uses that to bring them to salvation. And, and amen. And thank God for that. So, now that we've discussed the steps in trying to restore a believer back to the flock, now we're going to look at the authority in which Jesus give, gave the disciples and to us to be able to do what we just mentioned. And that's the church authority. Verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He begins with the discussion with, truly I say to you, that is common for a commentator writes that this phrase is intended to recapture the disciples' attention to the same topic. We're still here, church discipline. Why do I say this? Because these three verses have been misused the most. I think the first one is Philippians 4.13, and the second ones are these. So a lot of people try to not associate church discipline with these verses, but they go together. They're hand in hand. Truly I say to you, where do we see these verses before? Brandon taught us this passage when we went over Matthew 16. Everyone turn to Matthew 16, just one page over. Verse 17. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Remember the confession that Jesus is Christ. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall, be ha shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The only difference is here, he's talking in singular to Peter. In, verse in chapter 18, verses 18, he's talking plural. So, does anybody remember the explanation that Brandon gave about this verse? And what does it mean to bound something in on earth, and it's bounded in heaven, and loose on earth, and loose in heaven. Does anybody remember that? Okay. It's talking about the authority that the elders of the corporate body have over its people. See, the Greek word for bind means to fasten an obligation onto someone, right? To give a judgment upon someone. The Greek word for loose is to annul, unbind, right? To unfasten an obligation to someone. 
So, for example, if as a collective body we come together and say that this person is unrepentant, that's the declaration that we've seen, that, that's what we come, the conclusion that we have, then God will back us up in heaven because we are following what he already has said in the first place. So even to come to the conclusion, we did the steps. After doing the steps, we decided, well, they're unrepenting. We take them out. We treat them as unbelievers. What we bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven because we're already doing what God has said anyways. At the same time, if the believer repents when the church confirms it, here on earth, it will be backed in heaven as well. A commentator writes, please pay attention to this because I don't want any confusion. Jesus' comments about binding and loosing related to the church's authority to open doors through the wielding of God's revealed word. Jesus was emphasizing the church's authority to shut the door to the community of faith in the face of the sinning brother who resisted every effort the believers made to restore him to holy character. Just as the church has the authority to close that door, it also has the authority to open it again. Should the believer repent? In other words, the church discipline decisions the church makes when it follows Jesus' guidelines carefully and maintains a right attitude are in keeping with what has already been decided by God in heaven. So if we did this process of church discipline well, in love, admonishing in love, not judging with a, a, with a moment of, you're so bad, you really, I'm so better than you, which really like, please repent before the Lord. We, you don't know, you don't want to go there. You don't want to be separated from the Father. You don't want to be separated from, come back. And it's a really, and we went through the steps, how they were, privately with others, with the church, and, and, we're, and we're doing everything in the right way with the right attitude. Whatever we decided on earth was backed up in heaven. Amen? Any questions on that? To reinforce this concept, Jesus repeats this concept one more time in verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. Oh, are we talking about a different context here in verse 19? No, we're still talking about what? Church discipline. We're not, we haven't gone anywhere yet. A lot of people want to separate it. A lot of people want to say, well, if we really want for God to do what we want, I can't pray by myself where two or more are gathered. Come on, let's pray. You and me together right now, we're going to pray for this million dollars for the building or whatever. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that God doesn't answer your prayers or hear your prayers by yourself. He hears your prayers. Okay, guys? By yourself, He hears your prayers. You don't need one or two people to be with you for God to hear your prayers. That was one of the misused verses that I grew up with. Yeah, we were praying together. Yeah, because when you say two or three are gathered in your name, Lord, you are there, Lord. It's like the context here is church discipline. Church discipline. The Greek word for agree is harmony, to achieve harmony of opinion or feeling or purpose. The Greek definition for anything, guess what it is? Guess what the Greek word for anything is? It's related to legal remedies, often of concerns which, which legal remedy is sought. The anything is referring to legality. So the anything is related to what we decided as a church of the results of the church discipline. The idea is, if the church has determined 
that someone is unrepenting after the judicial process of church discipline, quote-unquote, it will be backed up by God because we are obeying what he has already said in his word for what the definition of an unrepentant sinner is anyway. This is not a verse promising that everything you ask for other, with other believers will be given to you. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that, may be, that, that you may ask, meaning, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about any legal aspect that you guys have determined, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. It will be backed up by God who is in heaven because you've done your due diligence. Any question on that one? To finalize, for where there are two or three, or for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Does that mean that when you pray with somebody, that's the only time Jesus is going to be there? Is that what that's saying? No, Jesus is always there. He's always around. He's always with us. All the time. Every time. What he's saying is, when two or three come and do the will of my father, which is church discipline, of course I'm going to be there. Because they are doing what I commanded them to do. I'm, I'm, I'm supporting their decisions as a church. I'm supporting their decision in their leadership because they're obeying what I have said already anyway. Any questions on these verses? Super uh, easy to get confused and super easy to, to misinterpret them, but they are related to church discipline. And if you follow Matthew 18, it's not a coincidence of all the lessons that we've talked about, how it continues in order. And guess what next week is? The unforgiving slave. How are we to treat a believer who has left the flock and returned repenting. How are we to treat them with joy? Forgiving them just like Christ has forgiven us. And that's our next lesson. So this is all related. It's all together. Now some of you are going to be asking, well, what if I'm not a believer? So I don't have to worry about this. Well, you might not have to worry about it directly, but you have to worry about something worse. And it's your salvation. One day we're going to die. And we're going to be judged for everything that we've done in this life. And the verdict, I'm going to tell you right now, is going to be guilty. Because we're sinners. Nothing that you've done on your own can ever save you. But the good news is that Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth, lived the perfect life you and me could never live, and died on the cross, resurrected on the third day to prove who he said he was, and is at the right hand of God right now. And the Bible says that if you repent from your sins and believe in him and put your trust in him for your salvation, you can be saved. Don't let today pass without you making Jesus your Lord and repenting from your sins and putting your faith and trust in him and him alone. In conclusion, I want to ask you guys a couple of questions. How will you treat those who have gone astray now that you've learned about church discipline? How are you going to treat those that have gone astray? We're going to treat them with love. We're going to pray for them. We're going to admonish them. We're going to preach the gospel to them and pray to God that they come back. 
And when they do come back, we're going to receive them with joy and we're going to forgive and be forgiven because Christ has forgiven us for all the, one, all the horrible things that we've done. Our cooperation in seeking to restore sinning believers is not optional, guys. It's not optional. These are commands. Failure to follow Jesus' instruction regarding church discipline, either by neglect or by confronting with wrong motives or in the wrong manner, is one of the greatest sins of modern Christianity. Guys, I want you to know that a lot of people will not teach this passage. A lot of churches will not even look at it. A lot of people, a lot of churches won't even practice this. Because they think it's outdated. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. But by not doing this, how many souls are being lost? How many souls are not being restored because churches don't want to do what the Bible has commanded to do, even if it's difficult, even if it's uncomfortable? You know what? Thank God for church discipline because it's important for God. And if it's important for God, it should be important to us. How do you apply this? I want you to change your thinking about church discipline. It's not to condemn or to take a brother out of the church. It's actually to win a brother. A, to win a brother. That's why church discipline is practiced. To win a brother back. Number two, pray that you never go astray. Don't ever think that this will never happen to you. This should encourage us to live a Christ-centered life, to seek God through the power of his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to transform our lives, to love God, to follow his commandments. This should not scare us. We should be like, well, I'm not going to practice sin because I'm going to get church discipline. No, I'm not going to practice sin because I want to obey the, I want to obey God. I want to honor God. Well, I'm not going to, you know, pra- uh, you know, practice. I'm not going to. Hold on. <laughs> Not coming back to me. Oh, hold on. I totally lost my train of thought. Sorry, Dusty, that's listening to this. All right. I was saying that it should encourage us to live a g- life that loves, that we love God. It should encourage us and motivate us, motivate us to live a life and not be worried about, oh, I, I'm not going to be sinning because I don't want to get the consequences. No, I, I don't want to be sinning because I want to honor the Lord. That's what I want to say. Number three, if you ever practice church discipline at NBC, I want you to make sure that you pray for the restoration of the believer. If you ever, if you ever do this as a church, well, it will happen because guess what? We're not perfect, and we're sinning, and it might happen. When that does happen, it better not be like, No, it's like, hey, let's get together and pray once a week for this person so they can come back to the Lord. In our small groups, th- that person is going to be in our prayers daily until they come back to the Lord. That is the attitude that we're going to have. Number four, pray for the elders to be courageous and stand firm on the truth of Scripture and to follow it even though the process may be difficult, no matter how it is. Pray for our elders that they have the courage to do this because it's not easy. Lastly, praise God that we're in a biblical church that practices this. A lot of people don't, but we do here. And thank God we have elders that are courageous to do this. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you reprove us, you correct us, you train us. 
Father, you equip us for the good works, Lord, that you have for us. Father, let us always be reminded to, let us always be motivated to live a Christian life, not because of the sin or the consequences that we may get, but because we want to honor you, Lord. Let us live our lives to honor you, God, above all. We pray, Lord, that we can never fall here. We can never go astray, Lord. And if we ever do, Father, give us the mercy to come back. Give us the strength to walk in the Spirit, to meditate on your word day and night, that we can always live according to your statutes and according to your commandments. We pray for any believer right now that might be going astray at our church, anybody who is dancing or on the line of sinning and and, and practicing unrepentant sin. Lord, we pray that you convict their hearts, that you convict them, Father, they can come back to you, Lord. We pray that you can help us be courageous and do our part with each other and love one another and confront one another when we have to, Father, because it's a commandment that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the perfection of your word. Thank you because everything is perfect in Matthew chapter 18, how we've been learning about it and our next lesson on how to rejoice and to be forgive and, and to forgive those who come back when they have sinned against you, Lord, and to forgive them just as you have forgiven us. Thank you for your word. It is in your name we pray. Amen.